Welcome to the Fly World Podcast. I'm your host, DeFi Dave, with your host, Capital K. And we're coming here every day to bring you content from this day. And <laughs> never mind, I'm done with this freestyle rap, but we had Omid on the podcast. I just saved the intro. You already know, DeFi Dave. Subscribe to Flywheel if you know you know. <laughs> nice. nice that was straight from the dome i'm, I'm glad you brought <laughs> yeah. that home <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh, there's a little bit um i see there uh welcome to fly everyone i'm your host Cfi dave here with capital k and this week we had on mr omid malikon i'm so bad at pronouncing and remembering names he's the author of re-architecting trust the curse of history and the crypto cure for money markets and platforms we go right into the book. We take a deep dive. Um, Omid has been a vet in the space. He's been around for 10 years. He's thought about a lot of things and I really enjoyed this one. You can just, you know, tell by my body language, how excited I am for this one. Kit, uh, what are your thoughts? I, I think this one is a sit back, kick your feet up and just ponder. And yeah. Just listen and just ponder. Literally nice. just ponder. No notebook needed. Just sit back, relax and vibe. Like I said, we get really deep into the details of this book. Um, and while you're pondering, here's some things you should pay attention to. First of all, major theme of the book is, of course, trust and this thing called the free rider problem. And I want you to pay attention to how the free rider problem has evolved throughout history, what causes this free rider problem, and what could be things to mitigate the free rider problem, especially with stuff like blockchain. Um, I would like to everyone to pay attention to the history of TradFi and how it has evolved and think about why we are here. Like, why are you listening to this podcast? What makes you interested in crypto? What makes you interested in blockchain? Um, we are all here for different reasons. Uh, and I think what's me and Omid are here for similar reasons and which is why I'm so excited for this one. So those are things to pay attention to, but yeah, if you want to catch us every week, make sure you hit that bell button and subscribe because I love this episode and you know, love what we have coming in the future. We got some special things. So make sure you subscribe, leave us a comment, let us know what you think. Give us a like, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at flywheel DeFi, uh, join our telegram group at flywheel DeFi. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DeFi Dave 22. You can follow me at zero X capital underscore K and subscribe to flywheeldefi.com. And let's get the flywheel spinning. Do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, Frax ETH is there for you. Frax ETH is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into Frax ETH today. GM everyone, welcome back to Flywheel. I'm your host, DeFi Dave here with Capital K, and I am ecstatic, and you heard that right, ecstatic for this episode, because we have on Omid Malikan, who is the author of Rearchitecting Trust, The Curse of History, The Crypto Cure for Money, Markets, and Platforms. And this is the perfect word cell book, and which is which is why I'm so excited for it, because uh, it really tickles the, uh, the inner history, political science buff within me. So Omid, Thank you for, for coming on. I spent, you know, the past few days just digesting your book, taking it all in, and I prepared a whole slew of questions for you. That is awesome. I am ecstatic to be here, Dave, <laughs> and to attempt to uh, answer all of your questions. I'm very <laughs> impressed that you 
you manage to do everything that you do and actually read most of the book in the span of two days. You got to do your homework. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, I literally just like woke up. I was selling kit, like just wake up every morning, go to the coffee shop, just dive in. But yeah, anyways, let's get into it. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with you, um, what's your background and what was your aha moment in crypto? Sure. So I currently I, I teach uh, crypto at Columbia Business School. I've been doing that for the last four years. I've been working in the crypto industry in various capacities for the last six. But my aha moment came all the way back in like the late 2013, early 2014 period, uh, where a friend asked me to help her buy a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin. Uh, I myself had little interest at the time, but I was like, oh, let, let's see what this is like. So I opened up an exchange account for her, um, bought the coins. And because at the time, this was right in the aftermath of Mt. Gox, exchanges were being hacked left and right. So even though I knew nothing about what I was doing, I knew enough to know that uh, you want to take self-custody. My aha moment was after that first transfer of the coins to just a software wallet I had installed on my computer. Uh, and there was a couple of things that blew me away. But one, it was this idea that I now had total ownership and control of a digital asset. Uh, prior to this aha moment, I have a Wall Street background. And the one thing you learn very intimately when you work in TradFi is that you don't actually own anything. There is always an army of brokers, clearing houses, banks that sit between you and your assets, all of which exist for good reasons. And as you know from reading the book, I actually spend a lot of the, the words in there trying to explore what those reasons are. But nevertheless, I was, I was kind of blown away by the fact that um, for the first time since the invention of internet, you could have digital items that have certain physical properties, the biggest one of which is digital scarcity. I did not have the vocabulary to communicate mm -hmm. any of this back then. The last 10 years has been a process of me getting better and better at um, communicating why I feel like crypto will re-architect pretty much everything as the title implies. And the second thing that really helped me and my aha moment was actually the Mt. Gox hacks, the Mt. Gox hack itself. Because uh, back then, all of my Wall Street friends would point at it and be like, oh, look at this stupid Bitcoin thing. Somebody stole a bunch of it and you can't replace it. But I was like, wait That's a, a point. minute. <laughs> That's yeah, a yeah. <laughs> and not just that. I was like, well, isn't that true for every other true store of value? Right. So to me, it was like, wow, look at this Bitcoin thing. Somebody stole a bunch of it and you can't just call a bank and tell them to replace it. Um, that means we've hit on something that is new and disruptive. Yeah. Right? So with, you know, first of all, very well written book, like very easy to read. Like I highly recommend everybody after this interview, please go buy it. Um, but what really stuck out to me, um, like what you really, uh, explained very clearly was how digital with digital scarcity and blockchain baked assets, it's a combination of, you know, ledger bait technology and like keeping track of assets on a ledger, which is convenient but also a combination of hard assets because you actually own the assets. So, you know, for so long throughout history, you had like, you know, you know, coins, um, paper money, uh, even like with uh, securities, you had like the bearer asset, but it was very hard to keep track of that, like who owned what, but with digital scarcity, you can combine the two and you kind of get the best of both worlds. Did I get that right? How would you explain that in your own words? 
You did. And, yeah. and, and to, to put it academically, assets have historically gone back and forth between having a token being token based and ledger based and, and to get real nerdy. The biggest difference between the two is when you have something that's token based, you authenticate the token. So if I pay you a dollar bill, all you care about is that it's not a counterfeit dollar bill. You don't care who I am. It doesn't matter how I got the dollar bill. What matters is that the dollar bill is not counterfeit because that's what determines your ability to pay to somebody else in the future. Uh, with ledger-based assets, whether it's the money in your bank account or the stocks in your brokerage portfolio, you authenticate the user. So if I, before crypto, if I initiate like a Venmo payment to you, then what Venmo needs to do is to authenticate me that I'm the rightful owner, I have a positive balance in my account, and I actually want to pay you. Um, and the appeal of token-based instruments is that, um, one, it's you have like total self-custody, which is appealing in many ways, but also it's private. Nobody knows what you own, how much cash you have in your wallet. Transactions are free. They settle instantly, and they're universally accessible. The downside of anything that's token-based, and like you said, even uh, you know, securities like stocks in the U.S. until not that long ago were based on certificates, the downsides are primarily inefficiency. Right? Like you don't want to go buy a house showing up with a duffel bag full of cash. Um, you know, and the internet would not work if it was based on physical cash. Um, even the securities markets, there's a whole fascinating history of in the 1960s, there was a period called the paperwork crisis when volumes of trading and the New York Stock Exchange went up, but the back office just literally could not keep up with all the certificates they need, that needed to change. Yeah. So they, for a while, they closed the, the exchange on Wednesdays just so the clerks could catch up. Um, so in modern times, especially in the digital world, we've moved to ledger-based everything. And while there are efficiency benefits, there are all these other trade-offs in terms of like fees, lack of privacy, lack of total access. And now that I've had a decade to think about it, uh, the cool thing about crypto assets or blockchain-based assets is that you get the best of both worlds. You still have privacy. You have there, there are transaction fees involved, but it's different than like the fees that a credit card company char charges. Universally accessible. Uh, all of that, but the efficiency of digital transfers or transactions. Yeah, if I had to do the TLDR of what you just said, token-based assets, you have you you have to trust the asset, and that you have to trust that the asset is real. Ledger-based um, assets, you have to trust the user. Those are are the two, and blockchain is a combination of both. Uh, just summing that up. Solid. Yep. And, well done. Uh, yep. And uh, you mentioned the uh, 1960s uh, paperwork crisis, which you did get into in the book. And you said a really in interesting line where the trading and transactions happened, you know, at the speed of digital, happened on computer mainframes, but the settlement still happened on paper. So you got basically forest worth of paper trying to settle. Um, and that's why they had to close every Wednesday. Um, can you give a, a little bit more background of that? And is there an equivalent of, of that happening today um, that you see? Yeah, so in, in the, um, it's actually a whole fascinating history about how Western societies for like the last three, 400 years have gone back and forth sometimes between token-based and ledger-based for everything from money to securities. Um, but, but the real, the modern financial system 
Uh, and the way it works is that thing ownership in the U.S. was certificate-based, in part because state incorporation law said that whoever owns a stock certificate is the rightful owner. Uh, but then trading happened in centralized venues like the NYSE. And, and as volumes went up just because the economy grew, but also trading became more and more uh, electronified, the paper trading just couldn't keep up. And it led to like more and more errors and more and more costs and brokerage houses would fail because they would literally make too many mistakes with sending the certificates to the wrong person, et cetera. So what we began after the paperwork crisis in the US was this uh, process of like new laws and regulations and mergers and acquisitions that brought us to the world we live in today. Uh, and there's some shocking aspects of it that I don't think enough people know. Like, for example, yeah, <laughs> I was going to say every single share of every public company in America is technically owned by one corporation. DTCC? DTCC. Yeah. DT, the Depository Trust and Clearing Company. Uh, it, it has a... It has a uh, subsidiary called Seed and Company. C stands for Securities Depository, but I, to me, it's more like you seed all power and control. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and this is like this great irony that the heart of American capitalism is in some ways as cronyist or socialist as you can get because DTCC is a for-profit company. It is owned by the big banks and the big brokers that get to access its systems. And then uh, we talked earlier about the intermediaries. Like, you know, there's like four or five layers of other for-profit companies that sit between you and your shares of Apple. Uh, you could argue that's not ideal for you or for Apple. There are good reasons why it exists. Um, and then there's the, the banking monetary equivalent of this too, which is why like anybody who's tried to send the wire and you realize that it takes three days and there are absurd restrictions like business hours. Um, and crypto is a fundamental re-architecture of this whole thing. And, and it, you know, there are two principles involved. One is how do we get control back to the people who it should belong to, like the people who invest in the company or hold the money. But the other one is you know, much, much less ideological. It's like we now live in a world where we all have fairly powerful computing devices, multiple, and we are connected. Uh, and we can exchange data 24-7. So if you were to rebuild the financial system from the ground up, taking into account the existence of computers and internet, you would just, common sense would more likely to go the crypto blockchain route than like the TradFi route. Yeah, and uh, nothing speaks clearer to this than what happened with GameStop back a few years ago mm. when you had Wall Street rise up. It felt like the culmination of like, you know, whether it was Occupy Wall Street or the Tea Party or like kind of that populist energy, but it was populist energy just put into action and the people actually were beating the hedge funds. And while they were beating them, they just pulled the plug. Like all these intermediaries were like, no, 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 we got to stop it. We got to stop it. And they said it. And this guy's like, oh, we need to protect the system. But in reality, like it was, you know, we all know what happened. And at the end of the day, I think what, which hedge fund ended up falling and like going bankrupt. Like it was in Mer Mervin, Melvin, it was Melvin. Melvin. Yeah. Melvin went bankrupt like a year or two years later. But, you know, it, it goes to show, you know, these, like you said, these intermediaries, intermediaries were created for a reason. I don't think they were created because of malice. They were created because of the situation. And then they've kind of, you know, 
when they get created, you can't really see how it's they're going to play out until they actually play out. And we saw it play out in GameStop. Um, but yeah, what are your thoughts on the whole GameStop situation? So I'll give you the good and the bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the good is that there are perfectly legitimate reasons why they pulled the plug. And it had to do with the fact that when you have so many intermediaries involved, and then all of them take these shortcuts for capital efficiency and operational efficiency, things like uh, you know, T plus two settlements, which listeners would have heard of. Um, you know, like technically in the US, when you buy stock, you don't own it for two days. Um, and the reason for that is again, like it literally takes that long, even with all the modern electronification, it takes that long for all the intermediaries to do their operations and to sync everything up. Uh, the risk there is what happens if something goes catastrophically wrong in those two days. So the brokers like Robinhood have to put up a certain amount of capital. <clears throat> um, and normally this is not a problem because normally buyers and sellers tend to cancel each other out. In fact, for all the stock trades that happen in the US, I believe 95% of them do not have to get registered in the books of DTCC. Because literally on a normal day for every buyer of Apple stock in Robinhood, there is a seller of Apple stock in Robinhood. So all Robinhood has to do is internally be like, hey, OE transferred a share to Dave. Debit, credit, done. The rest of the market doesn't even need to know this happened. They just know Robinhood in aggregate is holding 100 million shares for all its clients. What happened during the deep stock frenzy was that everyone in Robinhood was a buyer and there were no sellers. So <laughs> literally, the, they, they the couldn't app, balance their books. They couldn't balance their books, which is fine. They would have to go to DTCC and be like, listen, we're going to need a lot more Robinhood shares that have to come to us from you know, whoever Melvin Capital's uh, uh, broker and custodian mm. was. The concern was literally what would happen if Robinhood went bankrupt in the two days that it would take to finish this because then it wouldn't be able to pay for all those shares. Uh, and affect now the TCC and this is the good so far we're staying in the good they just gave them a margin call and there are rules in the books that dictate when and how this happened so this is part of the story I'm okay with what I'm not okay with is that in the last 40 years any other time the plumbing of Wall Street became problematic for institutional clients the government stepped in and this is what they do and we saw it you know, at the start of COVID, we we saw it in 2019 with uh, the uh, repo crisis. We saw it in 2008 in spades. And, and this is one of those things. I actually wrote a blog post that I got into trouble for my then employer, which was a big bank, where it's like, you know, yes, Virginia, the system is rigged <laughs> because any time big institutions, big banks might lose money because of plumbing issues the government steps in and says no 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 we can't have people lose money for plumbing issues so here's you know the federal reserve is going to create a new program or print a trillion dollars or whatever to make sure that people aren't forced to sell but the one time one time where it was just a retail public that was on the winning side and the institutions were on the losing side they just stood there and twiddled their thumbs and they were like oh you know free market that's the plumbing yeah <laughs> what are we gonna do robin yeah. doesn't have four billion dollars to put up a margin call i guess it's gonna have to prevent people from buying more shares wow and this actually goes to a bigger problem and, and i actually want to chunk up 
from here and go to the beginning of your book and where you really present the major theme of it all, which is this dichotomy between trust and the free market and, no, no, and the free rider, not free market, trust in the free rider problem, um, which is, you know, permeate throughout the book. Um, can we like go into this a bit more? Like what, what are your definitions of both and how it permeates throughout the ages and throughout your book? Sure. Uh, so we'll get philosophical for a second here. Uh, Sorry, trust kid. <laughs> kid is the NBA on board. We he's, he's the numbers guy. I'm the philosophy. I'm the word cell. So, uh, yeah. unfortunately, I'm more on the philosophical side myself, kid. Even though I, yeah, I, no, I no, teach no, at a business on. school. Yeah, yeah, let's flow. Let's flow. Uh, so we all agree, trust is is very important for a lot of human activity, uh, particularly financial activity, but even non-financial activity. Right? There's a reason why we form groups, teams, families, corporations, tribes. Um, it's just we get a lot more done if we're with a group of people that we trust. But there's a paradox, which is that opting into any trust framework, while it makes the group stronger, it makes us as individuals weaker because we're now making ourselves vulnerable to being taken advantage of. Uh, and this is as true for a marriage as it is for a democracy. Right? Like you all make mm. compromises and as long as everybody makes the same compromises, we're fine. But there's always those people, and these are the free riders who say, oh, you know, everyone's very trusting in this situation over here. So maybe I'll take advantage of it a little bit. This reminds me of like a school group project. There's always that one kid <laughs> in the group project that does, that does way less work than everyone. It's like, I'm just skip, skip by, blah, blah, blah. And that is the free rider problem. That is if we actually, in my class last semester, we had to introduce a team because it's a business school so a lot of the projects or homework assignments are team projects and there's always somebody complains like oh, one person did most of the work one person did no work so we ex keep experimenting with having team members assign points to each other as to mm. who did how much work um but in in society um what ends up happening is that the longer lasting a trust framework is the greater the temptation for the free riders to do what the they do. The sin wave of trust, as you say in your book. It's a sin yes, wave. Yeah. That's right. And this is all just abstract and philosophical, but I think it just resonates to everybody, not just about crypto and finance, but just it's life, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's if you, if you take your partnership, your marriage, your job for granted for too long, somebody's going to come around and possibly take advantage of it. Uh, and so this is when I said, you know, it's like a sine wave that you know, the the more, you know, it's like it's a money manager, right? Like if, if you have a money manager who has been around for decades and is has a reputation for being a great guy uh, and is is like donating money to charity and is, is the president of the NASD, well, then people are going to be less likely to look twice at his books and then you get Bernie Madoff. That's what happened, right? Like what Bernie Madoff was able to pull off we couldn't pull off tomorrow because if we showed up and said like give me 50 billion dollars and don't ask any questions people would be like who the hell are you no, i'm gonna ask many questions but you know good old bernie had been around forever and, and, and he was a solid guy and he belonged to the right country club so he was the free rider in that trust framework uh where this applies to um our domain and i think that the simplest thing is if you think about currencies uh, and it's the more trusted a currency becomes and the more widely adopted it becomes, the greater the incentive for the issuer of that currency to become a free rider. 
And, you know, the, the old days, you would do that by just, you know, if it was a metal coin you were issuing, you would start diluting it a little bit, right? And what we call seniorage. Uh, in the new new days, you hire PhDs and you give it really fancy names like quantitative easing. But you're doing exactly <laughs> the same thing, which is you are free riding on the fact that people trust your currency. Yep. And you like you lead right to my next question. Uh, seniorage um, is really just the decaying over time of you know of value of you know because of the free rider problem and the decaying of trust. And you can you actually compare seniorage to the monetization of platforms, whether they're Facebook and Google. And I know I'm not the only one when I say this, but Google is way worse than it used to be. It's just like you've searched for something; it's just like filled with ads. It's a lot harder, like for like to find like what you're exactly searching for. So it seems like seniorage is like one of those things. It's like you. I've actually never thought of seniorage as like so negative per se, but uh, but the way you frame it in your book, it's like you know, uh, it 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 kind of is. So can we go a bit more into seniorage? And I kind of want to get your take on a. Uh, what you thought of all these seniorage stable coins when they first came out in 2020, <laughs> because it was like the, the hottest thing to drop since sliced spread since like de that DeFi summer, everybody was like, you know, off the high of DeFi summer. It was like the winter people were looking for like the next thing to be. in. it was like, Oh, these stable coins, blah, blah, blah. But anyways, uh, seniorage and then your thoughts on like the first seniorage stable coins. So in, in economics and financial economics, seniorage is historically understood as the difference between the cost of creating money and the value, the face value of that money. And it was literally in the old days, it was like you issued a, you would issue a silver coin and you would, you would go to the mint on by the emperor, the king, whoever, and be like, I have a bunch of silver. I want coins because silver coins are more generally accepted as a medium of exchange and like raw silver and they would say fine I'm, I'm going to mint it and stamp my face on it but I'm going to keep 5% of the silver for myself and that was a seniorage in the old days and this is how you know, governments would in a way be free riders on the issuance of a currency and that in of itself is okay but then historically you know 5% goes to 10 goes to 20 then a war breaks out it goes to 80 <laughs> um, and we that's call like that the getting high on your own supply right <laughs> <laughs> um, in uh, well, what I did in the book because we're talking about trust is I just expanded that to be like anytime you have anything that has strong network effects so it becomes a platform if it's not owned by the users not decentralized which all web 2 platforms are not then they have they can do their own kind of seniorage, which means different things for different platforms. So you mentioned Google. One of my favorite examples of the side waves and the free rider problem is that if you go and read the original paper that was put out by Larry Page and Sergey Brin when they were grad students, uh, and they proposed their their page rank algorithm, which I'm old enough to remember when like Google came out and how much better it was at search engine than everything that came before. Short paper, I actually highly recommend everybody read it. It has a whole appendix on how advertising is a bad business model for a search engine. And they, they literally, <laughs> they say it's like it's titled something like advertising and it's uh, mixed motives or something like that. But they literally say, right now, if you go use Google and you search for a cell phone, what you see is the first link that comes up is something about the dangers of texting while driving. And so, 
right? But if it was, if, if this was an ad, uh, if the business model was advertising, you would see an ad and that would bastardize the search results. And the great irony of this, and this is a free rider problem incarnate, is today Google is the world's biggest advertising company by like a huge margin. And probably if you, I don't know, if you Google cell phone, you might see like a pixel phone ad is the first thing that yeah. comes up. Uh, and this is the history of every tech platform, which is they all meant well in the beginning. Don't be evil. Don't, don't be evil. But then one day they're like, oh, we have a billion users, products very popular, but we also have shareholders and investors and we need to make money. What are we going to do? In Google's case, it was advertising. For for a lot of the uh, gig economy, whether it's like Uber and Lyft and the food order delivery prices, it's literally we're just going to have to charge the users more and pay the drivers or whoever less. Um, just I think last week, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about how Spotify is contemplating raising its prices to generate more value. Eleven dollars, yep. To generate more value for shareholders and to cover their podcast losses because they made a big bet on. Oh, really? Yep, they made a big bet on podcasts, like getting exclusive deals with Joe Rogan. Um, What's her name from Call Her Daddy? I I I forget her freaking name, but yeah, they thought. But I think with podcasts, what I've realized is. You can't just have them siloed on one platform. They're best when they're on different platforms, but that's a different conversation. I want to get too off topic. Um, but the next thing I want to talk to you, talk about, um, you know, advertising as, you know, Google, like, do you want to do advertising? It seems like the one alternative there there is to advertising is micropayments that hasn't been entirely figured out yet, but it seems with, you know, blockchain and crypto and the coming of these L2s, like, it might actually be possible. So I want to get your take on uh, micropayments and do you see it as a viable alternative to uh, this advertising-based surveillance capitalism model we have? I think it's a great candidate for it. it it's actually one of the homework assignments I give my students is assume there is a world where there is free micropayments or effectively free. We always say effectively free because nothing in crypto should be Nothing can be completely free because that spam junk chills up the network, mm-hmm. but say effectively free. And the homework assignment is uh, come up with business models that didn't exist or can't exist. And then they come up with a lot of interesting stuff. I mean, there are things you don't think about, but like, why do we get paid every two weeks? What if we got paid every day, every hour, every second, right? Is that good or bad? I don't know, but we should find out. Um, you know, how about like, paying for electricity per every tiny unit of electricity that we use instead of once a month you get a bill and then you got to pay it uh and and one of the areas that i think is very ripe for exploration is media uh whether it's social media social media is a whole other uh interesting thing because the content is actually created by other users not a centralized entity but even with news i mean I feel like you guys probably have this problem that I do now that more and more of the news sites that I consume are disappearing behind paywalls. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't make sense for me to subscribe to like all 12 of the ones that I might read once a week. I might, the couple I'm happy to subscribe to a few things that I read every day, but then like every once in a while, it's like, oh, there's a really interesting article on Bloomberg that I want to read. Oh, I don't subscribe to Bloomberg. And that, that's not good for me. It's not good for them. What if we have a future where it's like, no, you just have your browser wallet and you load 
could be dollars, right? I'm not one of these, like, everything needs to be a coin maxi, stable coins. Um, and then I just browse the internet as I see fit. And every time there's an article, oh, I don't subscribe, no problem. It'll just take $2 or whatever from my wallet. I'm not saying that that's the future, but I'm saying that it'll be great once we move, remove all the physical barriers and that we get to experiment and find out if that's the future. Yeah, and you're starting to see this play out with streaming services for salaries on chain. I mean, a bunch of our grants that fly were, were from Llama Pay, and we were streamed by, second by second uh, our grant money, which is pretty cool to see. So you're seeing the beginnings of That's that. That's very cool. Yep. So, um, but I want to re- re- rewind back a bit. You mentioned you were talking about platforms and uh, something in the book where I thought yeah, that you said that I thought was very interesting was how. Bitcoin is more similar to Uber and Lyft than it, it is to PayPal because because it's more of a platform. Uh, what yeah. did you mean by this? So I broadly defined platform as uh, any service where the thing that's being consumed by one set of users is being provided by another set of users. And I, I make this distinction because, as you know, I explore this idea that like corporations are not well suited for platform business models, in my opinion, because corporations were invented like 500 years ago to provide services or to manufacture stuff. Uh, when you tell a corporation, no, build a platform where users create this stuff and other users consume them, um, then I think that, I think a lot of the breakdown of the world today, you already mentioned surveillance capitalism as one of them, um, is because this ill-fitting corporate model. But the way I see Bitcoin is that you have uh, users, you have miners, um, and then you have all the other ancillary services like exchanges and whatnot. But and they're not, they're not as like clearly delineated. If I go on Facebook, right, and I say, who uses Facebook? Anybody with a Facebook account? Who produces the content on Facebook? It's the people on Instagram that are putting up pictures and videos. Who? governs facebook it's management it's mark zuckerberg mostly who owns and captures value facebook it's shareholders right it's these clear separations between users operators and owners but if i ask you these questions for bitcoin right it's not clear like one there is really bitcoin is so decentralized there's really nobody in charge uh, its power is very diffuse among miners have some power, but then the nodes have some power and the coin owners have some power and the exchanges have some power. And then everybody's mixed. Like to be a miner, you have to be a user because what you get paid for uh, is in Bitcoin. And it's like, who captures the value of Bitcoin? There's no Bitcoin neck. Well, I guess the value goes to the coin holders and maybe to a lesser extent, the business built on top. So it becomes a lot more circular uh, which I think for platform models makes a lot more sense than the broken up corporate model. I actually never thought of uh, the way you frame corporations and how they were originally created, you know, 500 years ago for manufacturing goods, and they weren't well suited to run these platforms. But because of, you know, the evolution of corporations and everything else for that matter, they went on to, uh, st- you know, start and govern these platforms, and you have all the shareholders taking their cut and you know expanding this free rider problem yeah and i I have nothing against corporations i'm actually a pretty free market capitalist kind of guy but when i look at uh companies like uber 
which has almost never made money. I know recently they started making a small amount of money, but yay! <laughs> <laughs> there, there's this, there has been this uh, amazing um, dissonance where if you like look at what they say publicly, management, and then like you watch their TV ads, they literally run ad campaigns where they're like, we love our drivers. And you know, it's the gig economy, our drivers are entrepreneurs, we're here to empower the blah. Then you tune in to an Uber earnings report and literally the shareholders are like, when are you increasing the take rate, right? I.e., what are you going to screw the drivers? This is some real double speak right here. Yeah. <laughs> and that's how every platform works, right? Like Facebook, just any two-sided platform. Um, the, the food delivery ones like well, Uber Eats, that with DoorDash, Seamless. And by the way, no one should take my word for any of this. Just ask your Uber driver how much they make per ride. Please, I do it every time. And, and ask yourself whether that remotely makes sense. Because at the end of the day, the driver's doing the work, the driver's bringing the car, the driver's taking all the risk. But this is what happens when we put platforms inside this corporate model. And at least with the fundamental platforms like Bitcoin, Ethereum, a few of the decentralized projects we have in crypto so far, it's become a much more circular value. Where it's like, if you are a contributor, that's making this community-oriented project successful, then you also get a say in governance and you also get to capture the value. And I am optimistic that eventually we'll figure out how to expand that to everything from decentralized social media, which people are trying now, uh, to even things like decentralized rideshare. Yeah, I mean, we we always hear the joke like, oh, Uber on blockchain. But really what people are saying is like, let the value of Uber like go around to everybody participating in that network. Yeah, like who, who's, I know people get make fun of like put everything on the blockchain and there has been a lot of dumb ideas used. But I, I want to know like, who is the opposed to rebuilding Uber in a way where the drivers get the equity, they get the value and they get a say in how Uber is run? Like who's it? I want to know who's against that other than Uber's current shareholders, of course. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, we go on to the next question. Um, another thing I thought that was very interesting that you said in the book was uh, the rise of commercial banks corresponded with the rise of fiat money, uh, which I found you know pretty fascinating. I didn't realize that correlation. Um, is there a crypto equivalent to this? And would you consider stable coins maybe as like an equivalent to this? Maybe not so much stable coins because stable coins still are tied to fiat, they're, yeah. they're fiat money. They're tied to the fiat system. But um, in a way, DeFi, and, and this is where like I'll start to disagree with some crypto people, for example. Oh, like, let's hear know, it. Bring it yeah. on. Uh, you know, like crypto people will wax poetic and go on and on about the the evils of uh, fractional reserve banking uh, because it, it it's bad. And that, but that. Some of those same people had their bitcoins at like Celsius, earning nine percent interest. <laughs> and you know, where we think they were, well, Celsius might have been committing fraud. But all the crypto lenders, right? Same thing with DeFi. If you uh, if you go into DeFi now and uh, you add up the tokens that people are depositing in the lending protocols and other people are borrowing them, like that's a form of private banking because it's it's. You, you know, Ethereum is like the central bank. It issues ETH. But then I take my ETH and I go deposit it into Aave because I want to earn yield that somebody else borrows my Aave. We have now, sorry, borrows my ETH. We have now synthetically increased the supply of ETH. 
um, which is why one of the things that, that drives me crazy is when people say like, oh, you know, there's like $20 trillion in circulation, but there will only ever be 21 billion Bitcoins. That is not an apples to apples comparison. For the econ nerds, um, 21 million Bitcoin is what we call M0. <laughs> Um, it, it's it's literally the money that's base money that's being created by the issuer of the currency. And with the dollar, that number is currently whatever the size of the Fed's balance sheet is, $8 trillion or something like that. But then private enterprises, like commercial banks primarily, um, there's a money multiplier because there's borrowing and lending and credit creates money. The total amount of dollars ends up being like 20-something trillion. There's some version of that in crypto um it's volatile because the credit cycle in crypto is very volatile um and and you i would argue that um having the base money be issued by the protocol and having fixed inflation is still better than what central banks do but i feel like we us crypto people, if we want our vision to become true, we need to become as sophisticated on how the TradFi world works as the TradFi people are. And too often, the tendency in crypto is to just dismiss all of that, mm. which then leads to things like the seniorage uh, stablecoins that you mentioned <laughs> earlier, Dave. Yeah. Um, I want to get your take on the seniorage stablecoins, and then I have I want to ask you about stablecoin maximalism, because I think this leads into the sophistication of DeFi, but yeah, yeah. Which, so when, when that was happening, what, what was going through your head? What was going through the mind of Omid with senior edge stable coins? I, I think if you can go and look at my old medium posts and stuff like that, that I was on the record that, uh, those kind of like purely algorithmic minted stable coins were the stupidest idea in crypto. <laughs> they were based on completely circular logic. And, and then people would compare them and say, like, the idea of seniors come from central banking. They would be like, well, the Federal Reserve does this, so we're just going to be some a non-project on Ethereum and do the same thing. And I'd be like, well, first of all, there's two differences between these. Like, one, people have to use dollars. Literally, adoption of the dollar on every fiat currency at the end of the day is enforced at the point of the gun. And if you don't believe me, try not paying your taxes in dollars and see how the IRS responds. At some point, the guns come out. Um, so when you have guaranteed demand for your currency, you can get away with a lot of the senior shenanigans. If you just have like like the fourth fork of of some base, some coin, something, just nobody has to use currency. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a fun time. And then uh, you saw all these different ones that came out. I think one was uh, Iron Finance. And then, of yes. course, Luna was uh, the one, the end-all, be-all all of that model. I, I will say in – I got to think how carefully I say this. In defense of Luna's original vision, it did have a couple of – innovations that were much better than the previous attempts mm -hmm. one of them is if you remember originally it was supposed to be uh usc was supposed to be integrated into an actual payment app mm, yep. in, in asia yep, chai. chai right that creates demand right the more mm -hmm. demand you have for the liability which is the stable coin the more you can mess around with the equity or the assets behind it turned out they never actually did that Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that was interesting about Luna was that uh, it was 
backed not by just senior shares, but the staking token for a proof of stake blockchain, mm. which which we know it has some value independent of the stable coin. Right? Like ETH is valuable. All the other proof of stake coins are valuable. I uh, got it. Right. So originally there was some some wisdom to that but then it got too big too fast and it fell apart mm-hmm. and ultimately like going back to the idea that crypto people could learn from TradFi one thing we know from the world of banking is that you cannot have banks whose only asset is their own equity mm-hmm. because there's always and historically there have been banks where maybe not as severely as these seniorish coins but they were like well mostly it's the equity that backs are deposits, not assets. The death spiral problem is too big. That once one starts going down, the other starts to run, which then accelerates the other one going down, which is why like today, banking 101 is that you want banks to have a significant amount of capital in high quality assets like treasury bonds that have ultimately nothing to do with the equity of the bank. The equity of the bank could go to zero, but the treasury bonds are still valuable. Yeah, you're teaming me up so well with uh, stablecoin maximalism right now. All the different points, demand for the liability, high quality reserve assets. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of stablecoin maximalism um, at all or have you heard I about it? I am not. Can okay. you please yeah, tell yes. me? Gonna, this is exciting. Yes. Something was, new. Yeah, so this was the uh, topic of all my ETCC talks and discussions. Um, stablecoin maximalism was this idea first presented at ETH Denver by Frax founder Sam Kazemian earlier this year. And it's the idea that on a long enough timeline, all pretty much all DeFi protocols will become a stablecoin. And at scale, those stablecoins will look universally the same in structure. And so what is that structure? That structure is actually fractional reserve banking. And it's fractional, not because it's like, you know, equity or this and that. No, it's fractional because you have 90, you, you have these two parts. You have the high quality, the risk-free rate, which is a high quality reserve asset. And they have the swap facility where you can exchange the high quality reserve asset for, you know, whatever's the, whatever the stable coin is. Um, so, you know, clearest example is, you know, the dollar, dollar peg stable coins and with, you know, USDC. USDC, the high quality reserve asset is treasuries. And then the swap facility is literally cash. Um, and then you actually have ETHPEG stablecoins. And so Frax actually constructed this very unique two token system with uh, Frax ETH, which is this vanilla you know, equivalent of WETH. And then you have SFRAX ETH, which is the risk-free rate. That's the beacon chain yield of Ethereum. So you can go stake your Frax ETH for SFRAX ETH to get that risk-free rate. And then also you have the swap facility. And in my definition of this, I consider Curve to be the mincing redeeming facility. Maybe not everyone will agree with that, but because it's a stable swap and there's an AMO there, so the protocol is running a lot of stuff, I consider it that. You can sw- actually swap the Frax ETH for ETH in the Curve pool. And what's really cool about this model is you can actually measure the demand that what we call the monetary premium of Frax ETH because it's all the Frax ETH that isn't in SFRAX ETH and isn't in the curve pool that's just floating around in the ether, pun completely intended. And right now it's at like 11%, 12%. And you can actually apply this model to bridges. And most recently, the guys at Gnosis Chain, uh, which is with uh, XDAI, you know, DAI recently raised their risk-free rate of DAI, the DAI savings rate to almost three and a half percent. So a bunch of DAI just like left the bridge, got withdrawn because everybody wants that risk-free rate. So they're like, oh, we got to do something about this. And they actually borrowed from the Fraxy two token model and like, hey, you know, let's propose a uh, 
SX die. And so like you can actually put your X die in SX die. It earns like a boosted rate because not all X die is an SXX die. And um, yeah, you, you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. Um, and that is uh, that is a that is a save coin maximalism in a nutshell. This is fascinating. I'm going to have to go look up Sam's original talk and, and think more about it because he's very smart. And, and there's something about this that resonates with me. And the answer almost is, is not a financial one. It becomes like a political philosophical one as to how we want to structure our society. Because mm-hmm. let, let's make a let's make a hypothetical bank, right? Like let's say that we're going to just have one bank in the world that, that everybody's going to deposit all their money at this bank. And we're all paranoid about how safe this bank is. So we'll make it a, we'll call a narrow bank or a fully reserved bank. Uh, and the only thing this bank is allowed to do is to like own short-term U.S. treasuries, period. Basically risk-free. Uh, and it has like trillions of dollars in assets and that would work. It would be safe. There's no running from it. Why would you run from this bank? It only holds treasuries. Um, but then we're making other social trade-offs. And one of them is like there's going to be just less private lending in the economy because all the money is at this one bank. Um, right? And then let's say somebody shows up after it's been running for a while and be like, what if we took 1% of our deposits and loaned them out? That works, right? I mean, look, we're, you're making, we're going to make 5% a year from the interest payment on the reserve. Surely we can lend out a fifth of our income, basically, right? And everybody would be like, yeah, yeah, that works. And then that goes on for a year. Like, well, what if we did 2%? 2%, yeah. Right? And, and this is like, you know, some version of this becomes the sine wave that maybe like eventually goes to 50% and then the bank fails. But mm-hmm. where that lever is between like ultra safe, super safe, safe, this is a political question or a mm-hmm. social question. Uh, and it's interesting if we look at the TradFi world, which is like, a lot of the design of the TradFi world is that we don't want it to be 100%. Uh, in fact, like if you know the history, the, the Caitlin Long Bank recently got rejected for a mm-hmm. Fed massacre, but the Fed has previously rejected applications for, there was actually one called the Arrow Bank. And they say, like, we can't have a bank that's too safe because then it's, there's, there's it's less. Suck up all the money. Uh, suck up all yeah. the money, yeah. Now, I don't. Actually, I think the Fed's. I think too much of our economy is is built around this outdated idea that like banks are really important. They're actually not that important, even for credit creation. Now we have so many different sources of credit creation. Now we have the bond market, we have the private loan market. It goes on and on from there. But I think like the crypto version of this is a fascinating question, uh, and particularly if you have projects that do start to have the equivalent of a token layer whether it's like the fax token right or you know maker has the mkr token well, let's say someday the maker is super successful and the market cap of the mkr token is like 10 billion or 50 billion or something and we know the protocol has the ability to mint and sell more if it, there's ever a bad debt could you argue in that model that like all the collateral ratios could come down and that like die doesn't need to be 300% backed or whatever it is today and that that's actually good for the crypto ecosystem because the cost of borrowing goes down maybe 
like you said, it's a cycle. It's just yeah. in, in inches. And like, it's more of a political question than anything else because, you know, what is the will to, you know, lower uh, the collateral ratio? Uh, in FRAX, we actually did the opposite several months ago where, you know, we were known as this hybrid, you know, partially collateralized yeah. stablecoin, but governments passed like, we're actually going to go up to a hundred, like the political right. will of the community. I remember that. Yep. Yeah. And uh, if you watched our first, or like our first thirty frac checks, it's just me and Kit arguing. Like Kit wanted to lower it, and me, I was like, no, we want to raise it. And eventually, like the the hundred uh, percent won out, and so we're on our march to a hundred percent there. Like, but here's why I love crypto, and why crypto will always be better than the traditional model. Whichever number you, the community, the protocol decides to move to. I, as a user, could always verify exactly where it is today, trustless fashion. I don't have to rely on you guys or some regular to tell me that, like, no, it's 90% back, it's 100% back, right? I can just go on chain and verify this. And this, to me, is in many ways, like, the killer app of crypto for all finance, this total transparency, because it is the ultimate de-risking. Right? Like, well, why do bank runs happen? The main reason bank runs happen is nobody knows what's going on inside the bank. So when SVB was going down, it's like, I don't know how much money they got left. I don't, I don't know how much deposits left in the last day, the last hour and stuff. But uh, in crypto, and I get into debates with these academics who try to tell me like, oh, you know, stable coins are really dangerous. And I'm like, non-stable coins are really dangerous. And they're like, <laughs> they're what are you dangerous. talking about? They're more than I'm like, let's play a fun game. You've heard about Tether, right? And I'm like, we don't know anything about Tether, whatever. I'm like, watch this. I'm going to tell you exactly what Tether's liabilities are to the fraction of the penny right now. Right? And then I'll go to like, you know, Etherscan and Tronscan and be like, there it is. And that's information that's not coming from Tether. Then I'm like, I'm going to sit here and wait while you tell me what PayPal's liabilities are down to the penny. You can't. The CEO of PayPal can't. I, banks can't. I, I worked in banks. I know how they are. So while there are these philosophical, political questions, all else being equal, when we move things on chain, the same model, same collateral, same leverage, same everything is safer. Yeah. And you bring up the point with transparency. You can just see you know, the liabilities and the balance sheet. And with Frax, you can literally see the balance sheet of what's going on uh, on chain. Um, but with because of this, you know, massive, you know, this massive transparency per se, is it even possible to like have like an under collateralized stablecoin? Um, like my theory is is actually over a long enough time scale, yes. But the requirement is you need to have locked liquidity, and it was locked liquidity that was Frax's you know, that really saved Frax in those times of crisis over the past few years. Um, but I, I think it is possible, but you'd have to be a lot more careful. And I think, you know, this transparency is a great thing. It's like such a benefit because you can just read the books. And like you said, read the liabilities right on chain. And it, it's it's the liquidity. And then the other thing is just adoption. Adoption, right? like if, yep, the if, monetary if, premium. If the monetary, if the resulting stable coin, we look at the, pardon my language, the shit the U.S. government has gotten away with in recent years because the dollar is a global reserve currency. Mm -hmm. If any emerging market had done some of the same things that the Fed has done, they would have been hyperinflation almost right away because people would have abandoned their currency like this. Uh, but because there's the dollar has strong network effects, there are many situations where people have to use the dollars and it doesn't matter what the Fed's doing. You know, eventually these things will matter, but in the short term it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And crypto projects, 
particularly uh, more on-chain bank-like stable coins will have their own version of it. Mm. Uh, another big topic in your book is uh, CBDCs. Um, and you, it seems like you have like quite a nuanced view on it. And with central banks, you actually call them a paper tiger and they're not as influential as we might think. Yes, they like inf- they have interest rates, and but they don't... It, it's, you know, the, the bottom of the pyramid can't influence the top, but the top of the pyramid can't influence the down, the bottom of the period. But with CBDCs, you can have things like, you know, literal inflation you can have negative interest rates where it's like deflation it's like oh like my money's gone um what is your take on cbdc's so i'm going to do the good and the bad thing again all right uh all right so so the good is that cash has historically played an important role in society uh and with digitization cat is cash is going away uh, you can you can always think of cash as like it's a public good in the same way that like roads are a public good and the police are a public good um, but let's imagine a world for a second where there are no CBDCs and everything goes 100% digital, which means all payments become digital. Now, everything that we're paying for is credit cards, fintechs, bank, checking accounts, whatever. In that world, there's now a tax on every single kind of economic transaction because all of those digital payments cost something. Some of it looks free. Like, you know, oh, I swap my credit card. It's great. It's free for me and I get rewards. Yeah, but the deli just got charged 3% by the for the interchange on that. And, and that's economically very bad because it's literally like mm-hmm. every single economic agent, everything that they do is going to pay a tax to like 10 companies globally. Um, then there's the privacy question of it because like, you know, if you worry about surveillance capitalism, just think about what your credit card company knows about you. Uh, and then there's the economic inclusion. The unbanked do not get access to non-crypto-based digital payments generally because it's all based on the banking system. So that's the good argument for why we want, as the economy evolves, the government to evolve the money and digitize it. The bad is everything that you just said, Dave, in terms of if you have fully transparent and fully programmable money that's still controlled by a central issuer, that the government could now surveil everything that we're all doing. And from a policy perspective, uh, particularly given like we're coming off of decades of completely failed policies, central banking, and the first rule of central banking is to never admit that you were wrong. It's always the policy that the people that were wrong. Um, There was actually, I have a quote in the book that it, for whatever odd reason in 2019, like before COVID, the Fed started cutting rates, even though yeah. the stock market was at all-time <laughs> highs and unemployment was there at all-time low. And it's like, why is the Fed cutting rates? And it was, the, the Powell's explanation was something like, well, the market wasn't, a, wasn't behaving the way we thought it would. So we had to go and change something. Um, so if you think about like the next time there is a recession, a crash, inflation or something, all of these blunt tools, I mean, look at today, right? Like the Fed just raised rates. Uh, their rate hikes have not done what they thought it would do in terms of the impact on the economy and inflation. For 20 years, they did the opposite. Like, oh, we're going to cut rates. And because of that, there will be more inflation and higher growth. And there wasn't. They just doubled down. Uh, with CBDCs, it could just be like, oh, well, we want 2% inflation, so we're just going to program everyone's money to grow magically inside their wallet overnight. Yeah, and those effects, knock-on effects, are felt faster because it's just direct. Yeah, it's 
traditionally, one of the reasons a lot of policy doesn't work is it has to travel through the commercial banking system because the mm-hmm. Fed doesn't really impact what you and I do. They impact what banks do. Uh, and we saw this with like negative interest rates in Europe and Japan where the commercial banking system refused to pass them on to their depositors. But again, with a CBDC, you're cutting out the middle layer and they could just, you know, ma- magically program your money to disappear. Okay. And something I'm still trying to wrap my head around is you mentioned the book, this will separate banking and payments, which have been yes. tied together for hundreds of years. Can you go into that more? Do you have a checking account? Yeah. Why? It doesn't pay interest. Never has. Just, well, no, I'm, why yeah. does anybody have a checking account? Yeah. You got to pay your bills. You got to pay your bills. And, and, and you have a place, you need to have a place for your paycheck or your income to come. Um, so it, it actually use a crypto term, convenience yield. Uh, mm-hmm. right? Like bank accounts have a very high convenience yield in the TradFi world because it's literally the only way to move money around. Um, but in a world where you have either CBDCs or stable coins, now you're like, wait, I don't need the bank account to pay people. I can just have some Frax or USDC or Fed coin in a digital wallet, and then I could send it to them. Uh, and this will be bad for banks because in order for them to attract our deposits back, they're going to have to pay higher interest. I'm okay with that. Good for us. Yeah, it's it's kind of absurd to me that um, you know even money like money market funds are very popular right now because you can get over five percent interest. Mm -hmm. Crypto aside, right, and it's safer than a bank. Uh, Imagine if we could make it so instead of me like what I literally have to do today, which is like oh I wanna I wanna invest in something, I have to first sell the shares of my money market fund in my brokerage account, wait twenty four hours for it to clear. Then wire the dollars that come out to it. What if I could just send my money market shares to the recipient? And, you know, up until the second I make the payment, I make 5% interest. The second they receive it, they make the interest. That's what a stable coin is. It will be, actually. Right now, it's mm-hmm. almost yeah. illegal for them to pay uh, interest. But that's all going to be bad for banks. But I don't yeah. care. Society doesn't exist to serve banks. Banks exist to serve society. society. Yeah, I definitely see in the future in on-chain world with these uh, account abstractions, smart contract wallets, you can do a bunch of cool things. And if you just have your stable coins in your smart contract wallet, it just starts to earn interest. That would be cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Actually, I, I wanted to jump in and um, talk about the checking account bit. It's like when you use a checking account, you even though you don't want to, you're effectively loaning your money to the bank at 0% interest and you take on all the exposure that they go on and ape behind the scene, right? <laughs> Those depositors at SVB didn't want to be so heavy in venture debt, but guess what? You are a venture debt investor <laughs> through yeah. and through. You have a massive venture debt portfolio. And in crypto, that would never happen, right? If the frax is in my wallet, I have full control of where that frax is going to go or if that frax is even to be used. It could just sit there, right? I, I think introducing that new concept of just fully, you know, control over your money like in, in the truest sense, like it could literally sit there and collect dust and no one can touch it. But, but where's in a checking account? Impossible. The money goes in and it's gone, you know? Yeah. So it, it's, you know, technically you're swapping it 
you know, your money becomes a liability to a commercial bank. It's a promise, right? When you have a checking account, you have a promise from the commercial bank that the money will be there when you want to get it out. And there's all these ever more complicated mechanisms with deposit insurance, the lender of last resort facility, capital requirements, et cetera, to make sure that the money will be there. But what we keep saying is like every 10 years, something blows up. Government has to print way more money to bail it out. And to take things back full circle to where the conversation began, with crypto, you get the best of both worlds, right? You get like the safety and soundness of the money in your mattress or wallet or whatever. But the convenience of digital payments to whoever, wherever, and even in crypto, you could still choose to go deposit into a lending protocol to earn yield, and then you're taking risk. There's smart contract risk, there's credit risk, but you don't have to do that just to pay rent. You're going to choose to do that because of the yield that you're getting, you believe, compensates you for the risk. Yeah. Um, this actually leads to my next point pretty well. You know, all this, you know, we're, we're talking about like the flaws and where TriFi can go away and the promise of DeFi. In the book, you know, you mentioned that there could be possible innovation with, you know, blockchain based assets in the future. Because right now in TradFi, we just have like debt and equity. Uh, but with blockchain, there are like instruments we haven't even thought of yet. Um, do you have any ideas of like what could possibly be created with blockchain? And, uh, basically with the promise of DeFi? I think that some of this is like, you know, what is Bitcoin? What is ETH? What is, what is Trax shares? You know, that we already have these products that have some of the properties of equity, some of the properties of currency, um, and some of the properties of just something new and weird that's never existed before. LSDs? Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, there you and, go. And, and I think, too often people fall into this trap where they feel compelled to try to squeeze these new products into these very outdated categories. Uh, and you know, the worst place this happens is in the regulatory sphere, right? Like you know, where the SEC wants to just call everything a security. But I think it's important to realize that historically speaking, definitions, categories, and regulations evolve to meet technology not the other way around so what i mean people they're like well is eth a security or not i'm like dude eth is eth, ETH is ETH. i know exactly what ETH is, <laughs> ETH, like, is eth go change your security definition to accommodate the fact that we now have assets that are issued by a protocol uh and that they could be used to help secure that protocol via staking to earn yield to pay for transaction fees uh you know Call it whatever you want to call it. I don't care. Like the semantic part is not important to me. The, the important is the innovation. And when we get into DeFi and when we get into the uh, the programmability of everything and the fact that we can, like, you know, you can just write all the code that you want to create assets that have as few or as many properties as you have, I am very excited to see what people who are far smarter and more creative than me come up with in terms of new financial primitives. Yeah, you're seeing a lot of this happen right now with the rehypothecation of ETH and basically, you know, using using assets to secure the chain, like with Eigenlayer, I know with Barachain, uh, it's using both like the liquidity of the chain to also secure the chain. And you have this like rehypothecation. I, have you looked into Eigenlayer or Barachain at all? Slightly. Slightly. Uh, and, and, and I think it's, 
again, like now let's say you know, the lessons of TradFi, I'm sure you're intimately familiar with how rehypothecation could go bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all of these are a form of leverage. They're not necessarily the pure financial leverage in the sense that like I want to place a levered bet that something's going to go up in value. But uh, the more you use the same asset for multiple things, so with Eigenlayer, right? like I'm going to stake ETH, secure Ethereum, and then I'm going to get my liquid staking ETH, and I'm going to basically restake that and secure something else. Very cool, very capital efficient, but now if something goes wrong, you're doubly screwed. Yeah. So this is, again, like, you know, there is that uh, risk-reward <laughs> bar that we talked about, and, and we as a community have to figure out where the responsible um, where the line leaders is. are, where the line is. Yeah, would you, I guess, would you call that seniorage in a way, if just, like, this constant hypothecation, if you're, like, let's say you end up, like, restaking to secure some, like, faulty, risky, but high-yielding network, and then it, everybody's in it, and then it goes bust, and people want their money back, and then it, it may, you know, ha- have a conflict of interest with the main security of ETH. Yeah, that that, that last bit, right? And I know this is like the uh, Talix's main gripe mm-hmm. with uh, with things like Eigenlayer is that like if everybody participates in it, and then Eigenlayer collapses or something or gets hacked or something, then everyone's going to be like, "Well, we got to fork Ethereum now." Because we there are too many of us that are caught up, which is what happened with the original DAO hack. Uh, mm-hmm. But it, it's not as pure of a form of a seniorage as like what we've seen with some crypto projects that are way too centralized among a group of insiders or initial investors or something. Mm-hmm. And then they figure out governance proposals that benefit them over the users of the network. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out. Um, I want to kind of like go back a bit um, to this one part of the of your book that I, f- I found your whole book interesting. So I'm just going to keep saying it. Um, but I, I, there's this one, um, you know, comparison I, I couldn't help but make. Uh, what when you mentioned this like practice of netting and settling by English bankers back in the 1600s or 1700s, where you have basically transactions batched, organized, and settled. You know, some clients had a preference compared to others. And this sounds like a lot similar to MEV. So what are your thoughts of this comparison? Uh, is it a good comparison, you know, a historical comparison? It's like MEV, but like way back in the 1600s, 1700s. <laughs> in some ways, it's similar. And it, it's like both are uh, the idea of how do you achieve operational efficiency for the intermediaries that make the system work. So the example that you cited London, 1700s, you got a bunch of banks, you have people paying each other from every bank. And like, you know, on day one, one way to run this is that every time I write a check to you and we have different banks, then your bank goes to my bank and says, hey, you got to give me 10 points to settle this payment. And this is actually what they started doing. Eventually, there were too much activity and too many banks. And they said, well, let's just have all the bankers send a representative to one place and then we'll all work everything out then after a while they started a pub actually and then after a while they were like wait a minute you know if, if we just instead of literally transferring money for every one of our clients that owes money to every one of our other clients if we just add up the totals um and then do one transaction at the end of the day um it's just a lot more efficient because again like we were saying with the Robinhood shares a lot of these are going to cancel each other out 
So it's like, oh, we each need to bring a lot less gold coins to mm. do this. Um, and then eventually you say, well, we should have a some kind of an entity that manages this. And that became the first clearinghouse. Clearinghouse has actually popped up automatically before regulations mandated mm-hmm. their use in banking and capital markets and other applications because they just made it that much more efficient for their intermediaries. MBG is a little bit similar in the sense that the miners or the validators, they get to reorder transactions in a way that um, benefit them. Uh, but I think after that, the analogy, I'll have to think about it more. Yeah. But you know, what we know is like, well, I guess in most cases also, like, you know, it's you, the, the solution to the batching and netting in the TradFi world is to just get rid of the intermediaries. Uh, I know in the TradFi world, it's and I, when I worked at a big bank, I would get into these discussions about like, oh, crypto and real-time growth settle transactions. And they would be like, oh, no, real-time is going to be really bad because our cost of capital will go up. And then I would think about it. I'm like, yeah, but we won't need you anymore. So it doesn't matter what your cost of capital is. <laughs> Kid, I just hear I just hear Ben from Cheetah just say cost of capital, yeah. cost of capital. Like he's forever etched in my brain. Um, I know there's a lot of work being done on MEV mm-hmm. mitigation or like even taking the value from MEV and recycling it back to the users with some kind of a burn. Um, but I would have to think more about the analogy before commenting further. Yeah, the MEV is just a whole field in itself, yeah. honestly. Like we don't really touch, we don't really talk, we're familiar with MEV, but like I'm like far from an expert. That's like, real that's like where the the talk about pvp and like the blood being shed on chain um that's where i you know i actually was um talking to i met i met vlad zamfir in paris and he was telling me this is some alpha about he was coming up with this thing called smart transactions and this was his devcon talk back uh last year at, at for devcon bogota and he actually says that you can in the future, you'll be able to go back in time to like perform MEV and that like proof of work will come back because uh, for with MEV, because it would be like basically the, um, I'm definitely botching this, but proof of work will come back because it would be um, the people competing to like have their transactions first via GPUs. But um, I have to like, I tried to watch the speech. I kind of went, it went over my head a bit. I've heard a few people explain to me, but smart transactions like, you know that we sh- well, if that actually happens and comes to fruition, you you heard it here first. But we'll we'll see. <laughs> I, I wonder if I wonder if what he meant is that the people doing the MEV will become so sophisticated and there'll be so much money to be made that they'll have to increasingly deploy sophisticated hardware. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, that, to be competitive, it. and I think a lot of this stuff gets really interesting with rollups mm-hmm. because the block times get really really fast and it's like whatever MEV you're gonna do if you're the sequencer or if we have decentralized sequencers or even if there's like proposer builder separation then it's like you got less than a second to yeah. figure out how all the possible permutations and maybe you need a lot of hardware to do that effectively yeah that's a, that's a lot of computation power needed there um, mm-hmm. I had a, a kid did you have a question yeah, uh, well ahead. I have something completely separate but it, are you wrapping up with the MEV uh, topic um, yeah, I'm done with the MEV topic. I had one more question, but you, you can go first. 
Okay, I, I just wanted to ask, like, obviously, Omid, you are so deep in the weeds, right, with this kind of stuff. And I'm just curious, do you have, like, colleagues or other faculties, whether at Columbia or not, who are also kind of, uh, you know, yield farming alongside you and are, are aping into certain <laughs> things? Like, is, is that even, like, uh, a This thing, leads to my or... next question really well. But, yeah, go ahead, yeah. Omid, answer. Uh, I doubt the, the aping, if anyone's aping, it's the students. Um, but I will tell you that uh, some of these topics, like MEV is one, uh, DeFi protocol design is another consensus. There are more and more people in academia that are fascinated by these topics, and they're going deeper and deeper into it and starting to do really interesting research, like the kind of research that I don't have the, um, I, I don't have the, the mental capacity to do. And part of the appeal is that this is pioneering work, that this is like a complete green space. You know, if you go to like TradFi and, and valuation models or even things like high frequency trading, a lot of these subjects from an academic perspective are very mature. Crypto is brand new. So mm-hmm. I actually, I tell this to my students, my students are MBAs. I tell it to PhD students uh, who I just meet randomly. I'm like, Ask a simple question like valuation models. People ask me all the time, like, how do you value crypto? I don't know. Someone will figure out something, <laughs> right? Like, someone will become the black shoals of crypto valuation. Right. Yeah. And if I was a ambitious young academic, I'm like, listen, options pricing been done. There's a thousand people working on it. Crypto pricing. Kit, this is your chance. Now's your time. <laughs> it's the time to shine. It's time to get that PhD right here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, yield farming, um, I'm going to like talk about like two opposite sides of the spectrum. You mentioned in the book uh, about how when Uber and Lyft IPO'd, they gave a sliver of equity to its drivers, which is a small amount. On the other side of the spectrum with liquidity mining and yield farming, uh, you had copious amounts of tokens that were given out, which is like the other extreme. Um, in this like blo- in this blockchain token based world, you know we'll be able to find a sweet spot eventually where you know uh, people will be able to like own their equity. But I'm wondering like I guess this goes back to what you were saying like how do we figure out that sweet spot? Like how do we get to that point where you know we get people you know people can like earn their share in the success of the network but also still be aligned with the success of the network and not feel like they, and also at the same time, not feel like they're getting chipped. It's like, where is yeah. that Goldilocks zone? I don't have a uh, scientific answer, but it's obviously not the Uber and Lyft model. But, and not. I think, I think too many crypto projects are uh, reserving too much of their tokens for the founders and early investors and, and not enough is getting, out there. I mean, look, think about the things that we know have succeeded. Bitcoin succeeded. Zero allocation to either founders or investors early on. I, Satoshi had only like four people knew about it when it first launched, so they were the only ones mining. But in the years that it's run since, most of the supply has gone to whoever showed up. Um, same thing with um, Ethereum. And, and specifically, like I think people forget one of the reasons Ethereum launch this proof of work with a roadmap to eventually go to proof of stake was to get more even token distribution than what's happened with a lot of the newer l1 since then which is they they do a big pre-sale right sell a bunch of tokens mm-hmm. to vcs and investors 
who I have nothing against, then they keep a bunch of tokens for themselves. Then they launch a proof of stake blockchain where they're staking and they're benefiting from the early inflation. So mm. I think one of the things as an industry we've done wrong is we're not thinking long-term enough. And whether it's like an L1 or even a D5 protocol, I think it should be more like the inflation schedule is going to run for the next 10, 20 years, or maybe permanently. I don't know if the right answer is like, you know, Bitcoin, zero inflation, deflation, 5% a year, whatever that number is. But in a way that says we want to get to an end state where the vast majority of token ownership and governance goes to the users who made the project a success, not to the founding team. Because as you become more and more successful, the founding team should become more and more irrelevant. Uh, and not to the early investors, because again, the same thing. Mm. What are some other blind spots that us in the industry have? What are other things that crypto is doing wrong? And sense of alignment is one of them. Uh, yeah. That's one of my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> lack of token transparency. Mm. And this is not an original idea. Uh, one of my friends slash former students, David Alderman, he works at Franklin Templeton Digital. He was doing research and he kept telling me and other friends for the last year, he's like, you won't believe how hard it is to figure out what a lot of tokens actual supply is and what their actual inflation schedule is. And I was shocked by this initially because I naively assumed like, oh, what do you mean? You go on you know, CoinMarketCap, CoinGecko and it's... And he's like, no. So, and he said once, he's like, sometimes I wonder if these are the founders know exactly what it is. And, and this is inexcusable because mm. transparency is one of the things we do best or we should do best. Um, so I actually think so you guys, and you do know, you know, like the, the public securities markets in the world, they have like standardized disclosure forms like 10K, 10Q right. and everything. Mm -hmm. I think in crypto, and again, I, David gets more credit for this idea than me, but I think we need to move to a world where every new project discloses everything that there is to know about their token using a standardized form that goes in a database somewhere, everywhere, I don't care where. And then you know exactly like, pre-mine, inflation, amount allotted to VCs, founding team, whatever. I mean, just the fact that WorldCoin just launched, right? 1%, and it's like, 1%, <laughs> it's a 20 billion FTV. Yeah, but there was that, there was that uh, interview, I know it was from a few months ago, where they were on Bankless and they were asking them like, what is your token distribution? And they're like, well, we can't disclose that. And I'm like, I'm going to set aside my other concerns about why WorldCoin even has a coin or why it exists, but mm -hmm. that's the kind of thing that just gives ammo to Dude. our critics and the regulators. Absolutely. And all these questions are actually quite common when you apply to exchanges. Like you have to fill out a form and like everything you just said, like, okay, what's the token distribution? What's the distribution schedule? Uh, what's all this? Like it would be so much easier if there was this transparent form where you can just fill out anybody can go see and now as you have like a one uh stop one size fits all that can go into like exchanges and, and stuff when you apply that sounds really convenient but like how do you agree to like standards if there's like that's the problem yeah. <laughs> that, that, and that's beyond crypto like it's so hard like there's only so many standards we've like agreed to universally i guess one of them is uh you know a mean Solmani said this a year and a half ago almost uh, almost a year ago time time is the standard we all agreed to that's good. It's yeah. a protocol, but, but like, but if we, yeah. we don't, as an industry, then the government will force us to. Exactly. If and we that's don't, as an optimal. industry, the government yeah. will force us to.
So I actually think uh, in this regard, VCs have a lot of hard and soft power in our industry. People care about their opinions on things, though they actually have capital that they deploy. So I think something like if the biggest VCs banded together and said every new project that we're going to fund, if you're going to apply to us for investment, you have to follow this. It's just a disclosure standard. Yeah. It's not hard. And frankly, like if you don't know, if you can't tell me immediately what's the initial allocation, the inflation schedule, year 10 supply, you shouldn't exist. That to me delegitimizes you as a crypto project. Yeah. Uh no, all great points. I agree. Um, what are relating to this? What are some bottlenecks you see in crypto as an industry that's facing us, especially in adoption? Because you know we've been around for 14 years since you know the dawn of Bitcoin, and still we haven't had the same network effect as Facebook, as you put in the book. Uh, so, what are those bottlenecks to adoption? Key management, mm-hmm. we all know, right? Doesn't scale. So whether it's account abstraction or like semi-custodial solutions i think we'll need all of them um i think that's a big one i think for many things we have yet to figure out what the sustainable model is Uh, so i love all the experimenting in things like decentralized web3 social media um as you know in the book i make the argument that eventually all platforms will be decentralized and all two subway platforms I don't think we've yet figured out what decentralized social media looks like, even mm-hmm. though I really admire the people trying. They're just, with any big tech revolution, like V1 is like, well, here's how the old model works. Let's just drop it into the new tech. Um, usually you do that, it doesn't work out, but it gives you enough knowledge that you go be like, oh, well, here's how we're going to change social media in the future. Um, so I think figuring out the models is a big one. And I think the third one is though, like time and this, this might sound a little, uh, I don't know, egomaniacal for us crypto people, but I think that the change that crypto represents is so much more fundamental than like the change that Facebook represented. Mm. And something like that was always going to have a lengthier road to mass adoption and a much messier path to mass adoption. Hmm. I see that. Yeah. Yeah. Two very different lanes that are between Facebook and crypto adoption for sure. Um, I think, you know, that actually like almost wraps everything up. Do you have any like final words or like words that you would like to lead the audience? And after that, we'll lead into our, um, you know, our, our lightning round. No, I feel like I've, I've said as, as some, my editor accused me with the initial draft of the book that I sent her. I used too many words, so I'm just going to leave it be. <laughs> yeah, this this interview was just the tip of the iceberg. If you want the full package, make sure you buy the book, Rearchitecting Trust. Um, but yeah, thank you so much. We're going to get into the lightning round, so we're just going to get a bit lighter here. Uh, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Great. Yeah. So, I mean, at the end of our pause, we usually just want to ask uh, these questions just to get to know the uh, individual behind the profile picture. You know, in, in this case, we want to get to know what was your your virgin crypto experience and sexist doesn't count. I, I know you try to buy, you know, Bitcoin for your friend, but what was your first time that you touched the chain for your own personal purpose? Did you farm yam? <laughs> uh, no, I I believe that um, I also 
sometime like after that experience for a friend, I I bought a bit of Bitcoin, but then I also bought some ETH, and uh, it was all very terrifying. This I actually learned through fear because I have no technical background. So originally, if you remember with Ethereum, you had to like run a Light node to have a wallet, I believe. Same thing with Bitcoin. Uh, you had to with Bitcoin. Same thing with, yeah. 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 But Bitcoin was further along at this point. But like I was using my laptop, which did not have a solid state drive. And after a while, it couldn't keep up with the network anymore. So this is how I learned about how private keys work. I was like, oh, no, are my coins stuck God. forever because <laughs> my, my light note cannot sync? And then somebody smarter than me was like, no, it's like just go use my Ether wallet and load your private key. It's like, oh, so that's uh, how that works. <laughs> definitely a learning Love that. Path. Love that. Okay. And um, conversely, what is your favorite off chain touch grass activity, hobbies, and interests? Oh, well, I had a, a Zog Sports beach volleyball game last night where my team did, despite a losing season, we won our final few games. Let's so go. I love to Finishing be strong. Active. Yeah. W. We love to see it. Um, what's some advice you would give to your younger self? I have always tried many things, which is my personality. Uh, when I was younger, I would use that as an excuse not to go all out on anything. Mm. Uh, so the advice I would give my younger self is you can do as many things as you want as long as you go all out at everything that you try. It's okay if you fail, but just go all out. If you're going to do something, do it right or don't do it at all. Yeah. That's what my dad says. That's what I've learned. And in, my, in, in, the, in the book, if you... Uh, I dedicated it to my dad and one of the reasons why is when I'll never forget when I was in high school one day he looked at me I was working on some science project and he said you know what your problem is you never finish what you start uh, and I think it took until actually finishing writing this book <laughs> <laughs> years in the making decades yeah. in the making yeah and uh, if if you weren't in academia or finance what would your professional career path be today would it, can I still be in crypto or is you're saying no, it's... No, no. Okay. Health and wellness. Health and wellness. Okay. Okay. And then one last question. Who would you recommend to be the next guest on Flywheel? Who do you want to see? Who do I want to see? I think you should get one of my uh, Argentinian students on here because Ooh. a lot of them have very big ambitious ideas for what could be done with stable coins. And I think like... People from countries that have experienced hyperinflation don't trust their banks and it's already fairly dollarized have very unique and interesting perspectives about what the future will look like. Oh, we can. This will be like our first telephone good chain one. of guests from Austin to Omid to yeah. the Argentinian students. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to like come in and meet them one day. Oh, yeah. I'd love to actually uh, host you guys. I think there's a there's a lot of great energy on the Columbia campus. It's probably true on every campus. I can just mm -hmm. talk about the Columbia one. But uh, you should come. Because I always tell, even when yeah. I meet big skeptics, I'm like, is this crypto thing really a thing? I'm like, just come spend a few hours on campus and then you'll tell me. I've always wanted to go to Columbia. I've never, I haven't made it to the Upper West Side yet. <laughs> so I will take you up on that in the fall. Uh, Omid, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you online? 
Thank you. I'm on uh, my website, omidmalikhan.com. Looks on Amazon, Twitter at Malikhan O-O-M-S. <laughs> Re-architecting awesome. trust. Get now. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, excited to see where your book goes and uh, can't wait to have you on again in the future. Thank you. I've had a lot of conversations about this book, but this has been the most in-depth and the most enjoyable. So I am grateful. Clap to Dave. Clap to Dave. Thank you so much, Omi, for coming on. Post game time. Post game. Post game. Post game. Post game. Post game. So this is the first author that we've had on. Yep. It is the first author we had on of Rearchitecting Trust. Make sure you buy the book. Uh, we the went link in, is in the link is below. Right? Link is you below can go down here and find it. And we will actually be having a discussion in the flywheel chat um, since I read the book and I'd love to talk about it more. So if anybody wants to talk about the book with me, make sure you go buy the book and then join our Telegram below uh, at Flywheel DeFi and let's talk about the book together because uh, as you can tell from this episode. I was really excited. I was like, I like, I like couldn't contain like every like question I asked was like, bah, 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 bah. and so, um, yeah, this was like, I felt like this, I can't, we talked about this. Um, the infinity pools interview was the other side of the spectrum where it was like super numbers heavy, super, you know, what's going on with the mechanics, this and that. This was the word seller interview. This was about mm-hmm. theory, philosophy, why we're here, the history of how we got here and this and that. And so, um, yeah, guys, what are your initial thoughts on this one? I always like talking to professors because it's their job to explain things. And so, you know, like the, they, they've thought a lot about the best way to talk about things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think it was very clear in this episode, uh, just to speak to someone who has a financial background, understands markets, but at the same time is able to speak clearly about what's trying to be accomplished with crypto ecosystem mm. um, and some of the, like the longer term goals yeah. that are, that are coming. So and, yeah. Uh, Kit, what about you? Um, I mean, he is our <laughs> second professor that came on, right? Shriram was the first. No, th- I guess we have three. Right. We have three. We had Shriram, we had Austin, and now we had Omid. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, so for this specific one, I felt like the student that didn't do the homework because <laughs> also slashed because I also didn't. It was not really my kind of topic. <laughs> so no, 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 it reminded no. me of, of during my, my MBA courses when I was very selective with like what kind of homework I would do because there was just so much work. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because as I sat there and just listened to the two of you, uh, a banter and back and forth, like it was very clear that a lot of assumptions that I take just being in crypto, but laying it down in the way that you guys are talking about it made me really kind of recognize like, oh, okay, maybe there, there is this deeper layer that's more mm-hmm. connective than I initially had realized uh, between all the people who are in crypto versus those who are not. And that could be the link that get the people who are not in crypto to jump into crypto. Ooh, oh, let's, let's go nice. into that more. Like, what, what do you mean? Like, what could be that link to get those people not in crypto and into crypto that you see that was like kind of established on the interview? So like the the idea of, of this sine wave of, of trust and like when we kind of hit the crescendo of one end, it kind of auto corrects and brings it back down into the center. 
and I feel like we're kind of hitting all those crescendos in the uh, um, TradFi world. And I'm, I'm using TradFi as like society writ large, right? And we're, we're kind of at this point of maximum distrust of institution and obviously this maximum distrust of the financial system. And then now it's going to autocorrect in. And then you guys mm-hmm. went really touchy-feely on like how uh, we come back to, we gotta trust each other and we gotta be vulnerable. When trust is involved, we are extra vulnerable, but crypto kind of offers this best uh, of both worlds uh, where you could uh, be vulnerable, but also crush it. it. Actually in, in the book, he says, uh, the Bitcoin network invites the, basically the criminals become the cops. And I would argue right. that it's not about being, I mean, yes, being vulnerable and trust is like all great and all, but in these like, you know, hardcore, you know, environments that, you know, every, you know, point matters, um, you know, you have to have incentives rule everything. And, and that's what Satoshi realized when he, you know, created Bitcoin. And I think that's what the best protocol architects realize when they create their protocols and projects, like it's incentives all the way down. Yeah. Um, but with, you know, the book, you can tell that she, um, you can tell that Omid has been uh, thinking about this stuff for a long time, for about a decade. Uh, and I really appreciate his thoughtfulness. Uh, this is like the first book I read because I usually don't write reading. Like, to be honest, I've kind of like hit a lull other than flywheel content because I love our content. I've kind of hit like a lull with crypto content because I haven't I haven't seen that like why. It's just like seem, everybody seems like they're going through the motions or like they're promoting something, this and that. But with Omid, I can tell, I can see his passion. I can like, you know, read it in his words. I can read it in how he describes things and in, you know, comparisons and metaphors he makes. And what I really liked about this book is, you know, as I said earlier, like, how do we get here? Like, what is the context of us like getting here? And like, how is uh, history not only repeating, but rhyming? Um, And I see it with, uh, you know, with the whole, when we talk about the paperwork crisis, you know, oh, we have this, you know, trading happens on these computer mainframes, but some and so happen on paper. Uh, this reminded me a lot when Bology talks about, um, you know, with like the trading, the whole SVB thing, you kind of saw on like the stock market of like SBD, SVB shares, it was trading like analog, analog. And then it became digital when everybody like, you know, rushed to the door, it went, whoop, went to zero. Whoop, and you saw that with all these banks. And so we're kind of having a similar moment again, where it's not exactly, you know, you know, paper crisis, but it's definitely this like analog crisis. Um, and, you know, I am like pretty confident that the world will come on chain. And I think we all want to see that. It's just like a matter of like how we get there and like who will be in charge. Like hopefully it will be us. The network is in charge and we don't have free riders and we prevent the free rider problem from repeating itself. But that isn't guaranteed. Yeah. So one thing that he actually tweeted today, which I'm going to show here, is uh, he said, all else equal, stablecoins on public chains are the safest private payment instrument ever invented because 50% of the issuer's balance sheet is verifiable in trustless fashion. That's not the case for banks, fintechs, e-money, gift cards, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he he essentially asked the question of like, uh, you know, even though like what are Tether's liabilities, right? Like you know mm-hmm. them to a T because everything's unchained. To Same a thing T. for Frax as well too. Mm-hmm. Frax, Frax is even a step mm-hmm. ahead of that. Both like sides. All, all of our all of our assets and liabilities, except for what is being held by the the issuers of the stablecoins themselves, like Circle or Paxos. Um, you know, mm-hmm. everything is on chain and everything is seen. So we have these this very high uh, definitional clarity 
into what's happening with stable coins. I thought this was a very important, important point. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to hear crypto from the perspective, from his perspective, again, from this, you know, soft science humanities perspective, again, because I feel like I haven't heard that in a, in a while. And as I, I think I, I'm not sure if I said this on the podcast, you know, when I went to ETC this year, it was very technical and dev heavy, mm-hmm. um, you know, which is great and which is fine. But like I said, like, why are we here? What is that? Why? And so like with Omid, like, I know the, the why is here. It's just like to improve the system for all of us, you know, from like, even for the people at the bottom who often get taken advantage of the most, mm-hmm. uh, and in this, in the, like the system that we're building with, you know, blockchain and crypto, you know, gives them a chance to like get on their feet and it's not with identity, it's with keys. And I think like, that's really fucking cool. Yeah, I mean the we've kind of like solved the infrastructure for Ethereum and the other mm-hmm. L1s at this point, and now it becomes an app building process. Like, who's going to build the app that onboards a billion people, right? Fraction. <laughs> <laughs> Still, I mean, it's infrastructure. Somebody's going to have to build an app on top of Fraction of, of of how to use it. Like, where's our Argentinians building Spanish language uh, apps for Frax to? transmit money back and forth like without fees or something right like there's got to be some way yeah i it's uh whether it's in spanish chinese portuguese swahili um you know (laughs) and and everything in between um you know but it's a lot as he said at the end you know with stuff that we're building in crypto it's a longer road ahead because the ramifications are that much more than just a social network it's you Mm -hmm. know it's it's money itself as uh eric Voorhees tweeted several years ago you know or someone said this it's this is the separation of money and state well actually and also it's a separation of banking and payments possibly too which i also found really interesting yeah well i mean the banking and payments thing is like a long-standing discussion right okay. yeah that's uh, that's to be discussed but um, money and state that's what i was getting at yeah um but on that point uh, let's wrap up this post game. Uh, if you want to, you know, catch all our interviews, whether you're a word cell, a numbers guy, or someone in the middle, you know, me and Capital K will be going back to back every week. So make sure you subscribe, hit that bell button, give us a comment, let us know what you think, love it or hate it. We want to know. Give us a like, please. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at FlywheelDefi. Make sure you join our Telegram. Let's discuss the book uh, at FlywheelDefi. You can follow me on Twitter at DefiDay22. You can follow me at zero x capital underscore K. I'm at traders underscore insight. And don't forget to go out and buy the book. Yes. Buy the book. Buy the book. Architect and trust. Subscribe. Flywheeldefi.com. And we will see you next week. Peace. Peace. Everything said on this episode is not financial or tax advice. This channel is strictly for educational purposes and is not an investment advice or solicitation to buy or sell any assets or to make any financial decisions. This video is not tax advice whatsoever. Please talk to your accountant and do your own research.